Thank you, ladies. That was a beautiful, beautiful number. I could see why some people would have to cry right through that song. And uh, thank the Lord that He gives us parents who love the Lord. And uh, for those of you who have grown up with uh, a godly mom and a godly dad, what a blessing that is, isn't it? The Lord is good to us. This uh, morning, we have a lot of little challenges going on all at the same time, don't we? Uh, it's a busy, busy season anyway for harvest season, and we thank the Lord for the way He has provided in the harvest this year. And we give Him thanks for that. It's an amazing thing to be a witness. Um, we also have our issues, of course, with the virus and things of that nature. Um, quite a few people are listening to us right now over the internet. We had uh, started our program here, and for the first 10 minutes or so, all they got was a picture of a moose, I think. It, it was something we had to figure out what the right buttons were. So I think that's okay now, and they're getting something else. But I'm watching my microphone slowly work its way down, so I'm going to keep going down with it <laughs> as, as it goes. But I think it might stay up. I propped it with a hymn book now. Uh, but if anybody sees smoke rising from the first queue, I'm trying to record our message and video, run the video, the live stream of the message, all through that poor little laptop. Our uh, system is getting fixed, too. We've got a funny buzz in our in our uh, amplifying system, and when we record, it, it sounds like I'm underwater, and I need help hurry, in a hurry. It's just a terrible sound that we're getting from our uh, recordings as well. So anyway, if you don't mind putting up with a handful of things, uh, that's what we've got going on right now. Um, the Apostle Paul never had such problems with uh, technology, but maybe that's why he could preach all night long without uh, any concerns that way. Um, another thing to add to this, and, and I don't know at first if I should share this, but then I thought, well, maybe I should, because some of you, a small portion of you, I would say, will say, boy, I've heard that sermon before. March 22nd was the first Sunday we had not in this building. And that was three months ago. And uh, that was our Revelation chapter 11 chapter, where we were working on that together. Um, and what was interesting was, and just so you know, six people heard it. And how do I know that? Because I get the statistics of how many times people go on and listen to the sermon online. And there was only six that Sunday. And I said, so what do I do? I preach it again. <laughs> and that way, the rest of us can hear it too. And you say, I didn't know Pastor Bob knew that stuff. Oh, you'd be surprised at what technology gives me. <laughs> when, when, when we get our phone call that goes out, I get a report of everyone who actually answered their phone, those who let it go to some sort of an answering service, those who did not answer their phone, those who have their phone disconnected and it's no longer working, I get a list with your name. I don't know if legally I should have told you that. But maybe I should have. But I know who's got what. And it's just part of the technology of our world today. I don't know if you're used to that by now, but we're spied on in every single way, and your pastor's doing it too. Just so you know. I know what's going on. Uh, anyway, so... When, when I saw that uh, six of us have 
enjoyed the message from chapter 11. I said, let's all enjoy it. It's a really good message, and, and it is a fascinating one. Please turn there, Revelation chapter 11. We're back to where we left off. This is right up to half time of our study. I've changed the title in the bulletin. It was Revelation in 22 weeks. Now it's Revelation in 22 weeks, more or less. Uh, we're on the verge of, of staying true to that, but we've messed up a little bit along the way. But I want to remind you of a couple of things as we go into chapter number 11 here this morning. This is a very hard chapter. A very hard chapter. And there are things in this chapter that people who read it will say, you know, that's not at all what I thought God was like. Matter of fact, our world has an opinion that God shouldn't ever be uh, mean or, uh, I mean, these are their words, right? Uh, vindictive or judgmental or such like that. They, they want a, a Santa Claus kind of God who just gives them things and smiles a lot. Um, chapter 11 is a startling chapter for those who step back and look at it, but I want you to know this as we go right into this. Though we are talking about the tribulation period, and no, it has not started, because you're wondering, we are not in the tribulation, because the rapture goes first, and we as believers in Christ won't be here. You say, then why do we need a chapter like this? This is a hard chapter. Yes, this was written for the church. I want to underscore something. The book of Revelation was written for the church. It's not written for the world as a warning that their judgment is coming. And that is because, according to 2 Peter chapter 3, when that judgment is declared before the world, they mock it. They mock it. They mock the idea that God will judge this world. They don't believe it. They, they'd rather that uh, uh, that doesn't even exist. As far as they're concerned, they, they ignore it all the time. Um, but the fact that the world mocks God's judgment doesn't mean that he's not going to judge. Right? That won't stop him from what he has promised he will do. The message of the book of Revelation was not for them. It was for us. The church is the revelation of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And let me tell you why that's important. Because we love Him. And we long to see Him, don't we? And we long to be with Him, don't we? But do we not also long that every word He has ever said comes about, just like He said it? Don't we want to see His faithfulness in all His promises? And if he has said these things, shouldn't his church want to see his will fulfilled? Yes. Yes. And that's what we're seeing in this book. It's what he has said was going to happen. The first three chapters of this book set that as its purpose. The church belongs to our Savior. It has everything to do with His glory. We, as the bride of Christ, should desire to see Him glorified above everything else, right? 
Yes. That's exactly what we should desire. And so sometimes it's harder for us to grasp, grasp this fact. He is glorified in creation. And we talk about that in a beautiful sunrise or sunset. We talk about that at times. Well, you know, he's glorified in salvation, right? We rejoice in that. He, he's glorified in worship. He's glorified in obedience. He's also glorified in judgment. He's also glorified in holiness. And this is where it gets hard. He's even glorified in the destruction of the ungodly. That's a tough one, isn't it? We said, well, uh, let's, let's just say, if he's glorified in 95% of everything he does, isn't that great? No, he's glorified in everything he does. And that's the harder part for us, and it's harder for our world to even understand. But just note this, our Savior is not cruel. He is not mean-spirited. He is not unjust. He is merciful, right? Yes. He is patient, right? Yes. He is holy, right? Yes. He hates sin, is that true? Absolutely. And he keeps his promise. He always will. Just because he is not wishing that any should perish, doesn't mean that he will leave the ungodly unanswered in their sin. He will not leave it that way. We as a church belong to Jesus Christ. We ought to rejoice in the fact that he will keep his promises, all of them, and his holy name will be vindicated. As believers, that ought to excite us. I know it's not the prettiest theme to deal with, but it ought to excite us, because this is our Savior, and we want him glorified in everything. In everything. We're going to see the reality of that in this passage, chapter number 11. Verse 17 is our key verse. Verse 17. Look at these words. We give you thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who are and who were, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. You say, okay, that's a pretty neat verse. You can put that in the book of Psalms. Can't you? You can put that almost any place, and you say, that's wonderful. In the middle of this chapter, you're going to say, ooh, what an unusual place to find a verse like that. Let's go through it with me. All right, chapter 11, start with verse number 1. There was given to me a measuring rod with a staff, or like a staff, and somebody said, get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. Leave out the court, which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations, and they will tread it underfoot, the holy city, for 42 months. That's three and a half years. Okay? And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days. That's three and a half years. Clothed in sackcloth. 
These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand, stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. These have the power to shut up the sky so that the rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have the power of the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague and as often as they desire. When they had finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city which is mystically called Sodom in Egypt, where also the Lord was crucified. Those from the people of tribes of the people and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit, permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate, and they will send gifts to one another, because these two prophets tormented them who dwelt on the earth. It's going to look a lot like a Christmas day to them. And after three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell upon those who were watching them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up into heaven in a cloud, and the enemies watched them. And in that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is passed. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there was loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who stood on the throne before God fell on their face and worshipped God, saying, We give you thanks, so Lord God, the Almighty, who are and who were, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. And the nations were enraged, and your wrath came. And the time came for the dead to be judged, and the time for to reward your bondservants, the prophets, and the saints, and those who fear your name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. And the temple of God which is in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple, and there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, and an earthquake and a great hail storm. Wow. What a chapter. When you enter into chapter number 11, you're following along a series of judgments. There are three series in the book of Revelation. The first is called the seal judgments, and there's seven of them in number, and they progress one after the other, and they grow in intensity. And when you get to the seventh seal judgment, it opens up another series we call trumpet judgments. They do that because they blow a trumpet when the judgment started. And these seven trumpet judgments carry on for some time during the tribulation period. And those grow in intensity. And then as soon as the trumpet judgments are through, the bold judgments start. And they are by far the most severe. So we're right in the middle of the trumpet judgments, really. We're somewhere between judgment number six and judgment number seven when chapter 11 is given to us. Matter of fact, chapter, uh, the seventh judgment starts toward the end of this chapter. And so we are moving along in intensity as we go. And if I just dealt with the trumpet judgments here, what we would have 
is the earth was smitten in the first one, and it says a third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees were burned up, all of the green grass was burned up, and that's going to be an economical tragedy. Imagine it. In chapter 8, verse number 8, it mentions the second trumpet going off, and this affected the waters. One third of the sea became blood. Now it did not say became like blood. It said became blood. I take that literally. That's a terrible thing to imagine. A third of the sea became blood. A third of the sea creatures died. A third of the ships were destroyed. In chapter 8, verse 10 and 11, it talks about the fresh waters being smitten, and a third of those were destroyed and made bitter. That's highly effective on this earth. The fourth judgment came along, and the heavens were smitten, chapter 8, verse 12, and it talks about a third of the light being affected, the sun and the moon and the stars and such like that. And I don't know about you, but I don't know what it would be like to have a third of the day blacked out. But that's what it would be like during the judgments then. Trumpet number five starts in chapter number nine, where a swarm of locusts are let loose on the earth, and they will sting for five months, it says. And the problem with this is the people want to die, and they're not allowed to. The stings are intense. Uh, they are some sort of super incredible locust that is able to do this, and they will not be able to die. It's just a terrible thing. We move on down to the sixth judgment, the trumpet judgment, chapter 9, 13 through 19, and believe it or not, it gets even worse. Where an angelic army is let loose on this earth, led by four angels, mentioned in chapter number 9, and they kill one-third of mankind. Think of the tragedy of that number. One-third of mankind. That is, in light of the judgments to this point, the seal judgments killed one-fourth of mankind. <coughs> and if you just use a simple number close to our present-day population of 8 billion, You've lost 2 billion in the first time it happened. When you come to this point, there's 6 billion left, and then the third of it is killed. That's another 2 billion. You're at half the world's population by this point has died in less than 7 years. That's incredible. We have never known anything like that. But that's what's about to happen when the tribulation starts. So we've dealt with all these, and we get into chapter number 9, as we're moving along there, we say, okay, this is terrible. What is the response? What should be the response? The world is getting bombarded by the wrath of God, and wouldn't that bring them to their knees? Shouldn't that cause them to repent of their sins? Shouldn't it bring them to call upon the Lord to save them? Well, this is what it says in chapter 9, verse 20. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands so as to worship demons and the idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and wood which can neither hear nor walk and they did not repent of their murders or of their sorceries, of their immoralities or of their thefts. You may say, that's amazing, Pastor. 
Well, the truth is this. Don't expect unbelievers to act like anything but unbelievers. And that's exactly what they do. As the wrath is, is cranked up over and over and over again, let's understand something. It's not wrath that changes the heart. It's only Jesus that changes the heart. Only he says, judgment will not change a heart. Only God changes hearts. So we get into chapter number 11 here. And the seventh, twelfth judgment starts in verse 15. We're kind of in a pause for a moment in chapter 11. We're looking at things happening during the judgment time and we're saying, okay, this is all terrible stuff I'm reading, Pastor. It's not a good, I mean, this is Father's Day. Why are we on this topic? Well, we want to recognize a couple of things here. Number one, God is in control. And number two, he will be glorified. And that's why we pause in the text from time to time to get a glimpse of what's actually going on here. This is a revelation of Jesus Christ for his bride to see. Right? For his bride to see. And sometimes we get distracted by what's going on in this world, don't we? We see all the things around us and we start to wonder, is really this going to happen? Are we actually going to get raptured? Are we actually going to spend? Is all these promises true? Yes. But there's a lot of distractions to keep us from remembering those things. I like to think of chapter 11 as it begins with a couple of major distractions. Now, the Lord put these in here on purpose. I think they're good illustrations of what we tend to do anyway. But, first of all, it talks about two witnesses. I read it to you as you start into the early part of the chapter. He talks about two witnesses. And he calls that the second woe. Now, that's not woe like you're stopping your horse. It's W-O-E. That's distress. That's trouble. We're only two out of three when we get into this chapter, then what we're about to see is very distressing. Very distressing. It talks about two witnesses. I want you to focus on them with me for just a few minutes here. When chapter 11 starts, John, the writer, is given a measuring stick and says, John, go out and measure the temple for us. Just start measuring the temple. I find it very intriguing that he gets up and he starts measuring and he's told, leave out the court of the Gentiles on the outside, but just measure all this. But nothing's ever said about the measurements. Nothing's ever said about why he was told to measure the temple. He was told to do it, and then it, the whole thing moves. It, it goes on beyond that. And we're saying, okay, what, what's the point of measuring the temple then? Well, it goes on to say, verse 2, well, the Gentiles are going to trample this area for three and a half years. Three and a half years. Now you may say, okay, if he's going to measure it, why wasn't that given to us? What's the, what's the purpose of telling us how wide it is, how long it is, how tall, whatever? If we're not given those numbers, we don't know these things. Well, I step back and say, you know what that means? We're told there will be a temple. You have to measure it. It has to be there, right? If John's going to measure the temple, that means the temple is a reality. Whether or not we get the rest of the details, we at least know there will be a temple. What's that mean to us? 
It's real simple. During the tribulation period, there will be a temple in Jerusalem that the Jews will worship at. Is there one now? No. There is not one right now. Daniel chapter 9 tells us that the Antichrist will make a covenant with the Jews, with the people, in Daniel 9.27, and in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to the sacrifice and the grain offerings. That means not only is the temple up, but it's functioning. They're offering sacrifices, and according to Scripture, the Antichrist in Matthew 24, verse number 15, will desecrate that temple, called the abomination of desolation. He will walk into the temple just like it's prophesied, and he will sit down on a throne in the middle of the temple and ask to be worshipped. You have to have a temple for all that to happen. That means there is a temple that's going to be built. The tribulation period will have it. He said, okay, well that's curious. Oh, there's all kinds of other verses I could take you to. But here's what I find very interesting. For that temple to be built on the Temple Mount, something is going to have to change. Something will have to change. I don't know what. I'm not a prophet. I can't tell you. Something will have to change. It could happen in our lifetime. If we believe that we're living in near the end times, and these things are getting close, this could happen in our lifetime, can't it? Matter of fact, the temple could be built in your lifetime. Do you know that? The rapture is not based on the building of the temple. Only the tribulation needs the temple. Let me just say this. If you start to hear rumors that suddenly the temple is going to be built, and then you start to see them excavating over there and putting out bricks and stuff, start jumping. The rapture is on its way. It's coming. It's not a sign for the rapture. It's a sign for the tribulation. And the rapture happens before it. That's a very intriguing thing. To me, as I read this, I say, okay, the Lord has that in control too. He tells us there will be a temple, and we might see it going up. We might. I can't say much more about that, because John doesn't say much more about that. He leaves us, right, in verse number 2, and in verse number 3, he says, now let me talk about two witnesses. And he starts to describe these individuals for us that go about for three and a half years, and I don't know if that's in the middle, or if that's at the last, or if that's the, or where that puts in the three and a half years. But three and a half years within the seven, the two witnesses, clothed in sackcloth, which is going to make them stand out a little bit in our society, right? They're wearing sackcloth, and they are on this earth. And what's very interesting is that they're described by two olive trees and two lampstands in verse number four. And that's not an unusual description, because the book of Zechariah describes it that way, too. There's other places that all match up to speak of. These people serve the Lord. They're His servants. They're here for a purpose. They're here to provide oil for a lampstand, or, or provide light for others to see. They're here to be witnesses. That's the key to the word. And what they do in verse 5 and 6 is interesting too. Fire flows out of their mouth. That's a little unusual. It says that uh, they kill people with that. They have the power to shut up the sky. The rain does not fall 
for three and a half years. We've had one month of that, and it was getting pretty, pretty crispy out there, wasn't it? Three and a half years of no rain. They have power over the water to turn it into blood. They strike the earth with every plague. And people say, oh, we know who these are. They're very quick to identify them. You know, Moses, Elijah, weren't these the guys that, that turned water into blood? Weren't these the guys that brought plagues on this earth? Weren't these the guys who, who fire would come out of their mouth and devour people? We read about these things, or Elijah's ability to pray and it stopped raining for so long. You say, well, it's got to be them. We always pick them as the representatives. Moses, because he represents the law. Elijah, because he represents the prophets. Sounds like a pretty good setup. They have the actions of it. They devour enemies, like Elijah did. They prevent rain, like Elijah did. They turn water into blood, like Moses did. They bring plagues, like Moses did. And it's easy to attach their names to these. What's interesting to me is, according to the Greek text, both of them are turning water into blood. Both of them are having fire come out and devour their enemies. Not one does one and one does the other like they have specialties. But they both do this. And you say, okay, what's that all about? Well, let me give you a second option. People say, no, it's not Elijah and Moses. It's Elijah and Enoch. Do you know why? They didn't die. They didn't die. And these guys died. And after all, Scripture says it's appointed unto man wants to die. Thus they fulfill scripture. Now don't say that to Lazarus. That will bother him a lot if you say, matter of fact, there's a whole bunch of other people who have died twice. That's not the scripture that really supports that very well either. And so it's kind of interesting. What, what's the pastor's opinion? I'm allowed one, am I not? Can I have one? Just one. Here's my opinion. The Bible doesn't name them. And because it doesn't name them, these guys are like Moses or Elijah or Enoch, but it's quite possibly is somebody else that looks like them or acts like them, but they are two witnesses that God selected for that time, and he didn't name them. And apparently that wasn't important for us to know. He said, these are just my two witnesses. And they're going to cause an enormous distraction on this earth. Matter of fact, we just spent a good portion of our time talking about the glory of the Lord, and all we've done is talk about who are these people. Because that's what happens every time you pull out a commentary. You go into chapter 11, they skip all the other verses because they want to say, who are these two people? And they spend all their time talking about who they are. And God never told us. They talk about why wasn't the temple dimensions given to us. God didn't tell us. Obviously, that's not what God wanted us to see. He tells us about these two. They're witnesses. They're not here for themselves. They're witnesses. They prophesy. They witness. They even torment. It says in these passages in front of us. Verse 7 through verse number 12. And I leave that all before you right now. It's just like, yeah, they're busy people. And they're doing what God has sent them to do. And it says in verse 13, in that hour, when they were, they were first killed, they were left in the streets, how is the world going to all see them for three and a half days? You know what? 
Back in John's day, they had no clue to the answer. Today, I think we have a pretty good idea. It's Zoom. Everyone's going to have Zoom? No, I don't know about that. But the idea is that everyone's going to see that they're dead for three and a half years. And then they're called up by the Lord and they go into the heavens. And verse 13 says, And in that hour there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake. And the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. And you say, Woo, that's what we wanted to see. They finally repented. No. They didn't. They were terrified by what they had seen. That didn't change their heart. Their terror was something that brought God glory. The heart to swallow. The rest of the acts that we read of them proved that they did not change their hearts. God did not stop the judgments. But God did, did, did get the glory. The witnesses gave him glory. We know that's true. They spoke of his righteous judgments. We know that's true. The resurrection of those witnesses gave God glory. And all the world was watching and they saw it. They saw what God was able to do. And they watched it with fear. And an earthquake gave God glory as well. The response of the people to the earthquake gave God glory. Now, we may not fully understand how God gets the glory in disasters or in judgments, but if His holiness and His contempt for sin is displayed and people see it, that brings Him glory. That brings Him glory. As I said as I began this message, we're in the midst of judgments here that display His holiness. It shows the destruction of the ungodly, and our Savior is not cruel. Our Savior is not mean-spirited. He is not unjust. He is merciful. He is patient. He is holy. And He does hate sin. And that's what you're witnessing right in front of your eyes, because He's keeping His promise. He's keeping His promise. And we as a church who belong to Jesus Christ ought to rejoice in the fact that He keeps His promise. Because if he keeps his promise on that level, how likely is he to keep his promise to you? To me. Do you believe his words? You should. You're counting on it, aren't you? Then believe this too. This is what he said he would do. Now let's just look at the seven trumpet judgment just for a moment, just so you get the full glimpse of this. We are taught to pray in the Lord's Prayer. One little phrase, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done. Where? On earth as it is in heaven. Do we know what we're asking for? God's will to be accomplished on this earth? You're reading it right now. That's what you're asking for. It's something that gives him great glory. Look at it. Verse number 15. We're just up. Travel up to 16 or so. The seventh angel sounded. There's the seventh trumpet. 
loud voices in heaven began to say, The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on the throne before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who are and who were, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were enraged, and your wrath came. Wow. I'm not going to go into a lot of details right here. But it speaks of something incredible, doesn't it? God's wrath came. The nations were enraged. Are you surprised that the nations get upset with righteousness? Honestly. I think we get our fill of this almost every day now, don't we? We see it and we say, I never knew this world could be so wicked. Scripture says it doesn't get better. I'm sorry if that doesn't encourage you. But I'll tell you what, this world is not your home. You're citizens of a better place. We're just here for a little while. Then we go to be with the Lord. And when we step back and look at all this, we're going to say, praise the Lord for who you are. Look at what you brought us through. Look at what you've done. Your name deserves the praise. It deserves the glory. The church ought to desire to see God fulfill his word. Here's what Peter said. 2 Peter 3, 11, 12, and 13. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you, the church, to be in holy conduct and godliness? We ought to be different from the rest of the world. It ought to be so evident they see it. He says, and while you're being holy in your conduct and your godliness, keep looking for, there's an intense uh, anticipation in the words, keep looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Now that's a very incredible phrase that really takes some time to study it out, but let me give you the, the nutshell of it. We should urge the Lord to fulfill His word. That should be on our hearts. Lord, you promised, you promised this is what you said you would do. The coming of the day of the Lord, that's not pretty. It talks about a time when the heavens are destroyed by burning, the elements will melt with intense heat. And you say, well, why do we look forward to that? Because it goes on to say, because according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. And folks, if you're not wanting to live where righteousness is, something's wrong inside. We ought to desire that with all our hearts, to be where righteousness dwells. In other words, God has a plan, and he's enacting that plan, and his children ought to say, Lord, please do what you said, because we long to be with you. We long to see it. We long to see your name vindicated. We long to see your holiness put before everybody and everyone appreciate it and everyone love it and everyone serve you like they should. We want to see those glorious days when righteousness dwells in everything we see. That's what a believer ought to desire above everything else. They want to be with their Savior and they want to see Him rule and reign they want that. Do you? 
Is that what you desire about everything else? That's chapter 11. There's a lot of mess in there. But when you sit through it and you see, what are they rejoicing over? Our God reigns, is what it says. Our God reigns. Matter of fact, that little verse there, verse number 17, it says, you have taken your power and have begun to reign. That's New American Standard Version. That is not the best way to read an heiress in the Greek. What it should say is, you have taken your great power and you ruled. Ruled. We're not waiting for him to be a ruler. Guess what? He already is. We're not waiting for him to rule today. Because guess what? He is. And when the world starts to see these things unfold in front of them, guess who's still ruling? He is. That's the Lord you love, right? Yes. Yes. That's why this book was written to us, not to the world. Because it shows our Savior's holiness. It shows our Savior's righteousness. It shows our Savior's justice. It shows His power to rule. It shows His ability to discipline. His ability to succeed. His ability to command. And all of those things makes, you, makes our heart good and glad to see our Savior for who He is. That's what it says. We call Him our Savior. We call Him our Lord. Is there anything greater than Him? No. The world will give Him glory out of fear. We ought to give Him glory out of love. And out of adoration. And out of worship. So even though this chapter is hard to read, look at what it's telling us. Yes, this world is going through a terrible history like it's never known before. It's a necessary one because it's revealing the greatness of our Savior and the fact He keeps His promise. For that I step back and I say, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for this. Jesus does love His church. He loves His church. He read in the Gospels how He came down to this earth He created. And He's lived among those that were his own, but they rejected him. We read about the fact that they rejected him and crucified him on a cross, and they buried him in a tomb. But we rejoice that that was not the end of the story. He rose again, didn't he? Absolutely so. He conquered death. We rejoice to see all this because it speaks of his love for us. What he did for us, he took the penalty of our sin. You know what? If he hadn't done that, this is our future. What we just read today. But because he took the penalty for our sins, he paid the price that we couldn't pay. We have his mercy, we have his grace written all over the pages of scripture. And to be a recipient of that kind of love, and that kind of mercy, and that kind of grace is amazing. To be a recipient of that, folks, eternity is not long enough to praise Him, is it? Not long enough for us to praise Him. I wanted to give you that glimpse of it. I wanted you to see that chapter. That's a vital chapter for the church to understand. Because you go into chapter 12 and I'll give you one little preview. It gets worse. It does. 
Chapter 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. How many weeks is this going to be? We're going to get through it. But always remember, Jesus loves his church. I'm going to keep bringing you back to it, okay? That's important. Heavenly Father, with these words in front of us, not easy words, but I would say good words for us. Good for us, our hearts to see that the word of our Savior is true, is faithful, and He will always keep His promise. As believers in Christ, we need this. We need to see it again, even in the midst of our day. We need to see this. Because our heart's desire is to bring you glory, Lord Jesus. And I pray that we do, even in the midst of trouble and distractions and all the rest that goes on in our world too. May we be quick to give you the glory. May we practice it now, because we have a whole eternity ahead of us to continue on the same. Thank you for your great love for us. We praise you for all this in Jesus' name. Amen.